0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas. The second annual Raise Your Hand Texas Foundation poll of Texans perceptions on public education is now available. Check it out at raiseyourhandtexas.org 2021 poll and Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers. TAFEC strives for Texans to have timely access to high quality emergency care and champions fair regulation in the industry. Find out more at tafec.org. A long time.
1: Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for April 14th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week, I am joined by criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough, who has muted True, herself. I was muted. There <laughs> she is.
2: Hello.
1: <laughs> Great start, guys. Uh, energy and economy uh, reporter Mitchell Furman. Hey there. And politics reporter Cassie Pollock.
2: Hello.
1: Thanks, y'all, for joining us. So we are in the middle of April of a nice, kind of temperate spring. You know, highs in the low 80s, lows, nice, cool evenings. So, of course, we are entering another power emergency. Yesterday, ERCOT, the Texas power grid operator, uh, surprised some of us, at least, those of us who weren't watching this closely, to say that we were, you know, right on the edge of emergency conditions and urging Texans to conserve power. This, you know, never an exciting thing to hear from your power grid operator, but particularly coming off of February, where we, you know, millions of Texans went hours and days without power due to a, you know, major failure of our energy infrastructure. Uh, You know, definitely creating some worries as this was not extreme weather. Mitchell, what happened here?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Basically, ERCOT asked uh, Texans to conserve power uh, because the the main power grid in Texas struggled to keep up with the demand for electricity on Tuesday. Um, no, there were not reports, uh, of, of outages or widespread outages that we've seen, but, um, yeah, like you said, it was mild temperate weather across much of the state yesterday and the day before, uh, what ERCOT told reporters yesterday evening was that Tuesday evening was that, uh, there were a lot of of power plants down for root for maintenance, and this is the time of year when when power plants are typically down for maintenance because of the mild kind of temperate weather. You know when and and the expectation is that Texans will not be using the kind of volumes of electricity like they would when it's really hot or really cold, and and so there's you know they they can. Take some time to go down to do any maintenance in order to prepare for the summer when when demand is expected to to skyrocket for you know when when people are cranking their air conditioning and it, it was also it was a lot of generation that was offline um, you know approximately thirty two thousand megawatts um, the a vice president from Mercot said that it's normal around. April every year, there's normally about twenty to thirty thousand megawatts down for repairs. Uh, but there were, you know, there was more than that. And uh, a former uh, watchdog for ERCOT, Beth Garza, told me that that number kind of borders the edge of reasonable. So, you know, there are still questions. ERCOT did not get too much into the specifics of. Who you know? What power generations were down? Who was down and 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 why? Um, you know, there are experts are saying that um, some of these these maintenance repairs could stem from could be stemmed from the storm in February.
1: Sure. Okay, so yeah, I'm looking at your, the numbers in your story right now, and it, it said that demand for energy on the grid was near 49,000 megawatts at 5pm yesterday, and the available supply was 50,000. And it's one of those situations, right, where if demand surpasses supply, then you can kind of trip the grid and create serious problems, right? um and and so you know they were urging conservation in order to convince people you know to to lower the demand in order to avoid that situation but demand in february when we had this winter storm was 72,000 megawatts so we're talking about uh you know my quick math here 23,000 megawatts less in demand here um so so I guess like my, my, my question is, do we have any kind of a sense as to whether this is, you know, oops, we, we made a bad forecast, you know, oops, it was a little bit hotter than we need to do, but they've, they've got this under control. Or is there any sense that we might be experiencing this, you know, through the next few months as the temperature gets warmer? And, you know, is this, is this a small hiccup after a major problem or is this a sign of, of looming difficulties as we, we reach the summer months?
3: Uh, yes, uh, I think a little bit of both. Um,
1: <laughs> they,
3: it's unclear, right? The, some of those unknowns about the maintenance, right? And why certain power generation sources are offline uh, raises questions, right? Uh, are these, are some of these outages or more than some of these out, you know, maintenance outages due to, due to the storm? And if so, does that mean that these maintenance repairs for those damages from the storm will extend into the summer, right? And and we don't know that. Um, ERCOT did not get into that. They were asked about a, a variety of things, some of, some of which they got into detail with and some they didn't. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's, the summer demand is expected to be more than, you know, peak demand in the summer will be, will likely be greater than the the peak demand in February during the winter storm. As, as you mentioned, that 72,000 number, it could be several thousand megawatts more than that. And, you know, if there are, are plants down for maintenance stemming from the storm, you know, how long are they going to be out? And if so, will when the, when, when peak demand hits later in the summer, will there be enough generation to, to keep up with that? And that's what experts have told, have told me that they're, you know, that unknown is concerning.
1: Right, right. So we heard a, you know, as soon as this happened, we started getting statements in our inboxes from political groups. mainly members of the party that is not in power right now Democrats uh, saying you know here's a statement from the Texas Democratic Party Texans are thinking you've got to be kidding just two months after the failure of Texas's Abbott run energy system led to the death of nearly 200 Texans ERCOT is warning that Texas may yet again be dealing with a government failure on a catastrophic scale Uh, dot 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 we cannot afford to give Abbott another tournament in office uh a lot of kind of turning to, to the leaders of this state saying, how can this be happening again so quickly? We are of course in a legislative session where, where this is, has been identified as a, as a uh, priority by Abbott and, and other state leaders. Where are we, Mitchell, on proposals to fix this? I mean, are, are, are we, ha- have we settled around a, a philosophy as to like w- how we can avoid things like this from happening again?
3: Well, as far as the the generation being down for maintenance right now, uh, that seems to be an kind of an ERCOT error, right? As you as you as you said, the four it was a forecast hiccup, um, and they they admitted that you know the forecast was wrong. The weather changes; they were expecting a cold front to move across the state, which would, you know, so their their forecast they admitted but was was off, and that happens. Yeah. Um, but they you know their defense was that they you you see what happens with the weather and you can correct and
1: it's hard to imagine being too shocked of like low 80s in april though i mean that's not exactly uh that's not exactly negative one in texas you know like we talked about in february
3: right and it also raises questions about uh you know the way that ERCOT typically in in years past plant plans these these maintenance repairs right like the, it's usually during these temperate times of year spring and fall and they you know experts are kind of wondering whether they should kind of reevaluate putting such large chunks of generation allowing such large chunks of of generation to go down for maintenance right and, and you know with with climate change continuing to to alter you know our our, our temperatures during, different times of year, you know, maybe ERCOT should rethink is what experts are saying, you know, when, when to allow such great amounts of, of maintenance.
1: Yep. Cassie, you had a story earlier in the legislative session about Warren Buffett stepping in with his own kind of idea of how he could fix that. Um, Where does, can you describe for us quickly what that idea was and, and, and where we, where we stand in, in that, discussion.
2: Right. So uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy has been pitching lawmakers now for mm, maybe the past month roughly uh, on an idea, right, that the group would spend over $8 billion to build two uh, new natural gas power plants in the state that could only really be um, tapped into, like, for emergency use. Um, And, you know, in return, lawmakers would agree to create this revenue stream for uh, the group through an additional charge on Texans' power bills. Uh, when Aaron uh, Douglas and I reported this story last month, um, you know, things seemed to be kind of moving in the direction of maybe it was uh, that proposal was going to get added onto a bill currently uh, going through the legislative process on the House side. Um, that did not end up happening uh, for, you know, this reason or that reason. And we're still, we still have not yet heard the proposal yet before a committee hearing or on either floor of the House or Senate chamber. Um, So a little bit TBD on whether this is going to end up, um, you know, formalizing or crystallizing in any sort of like notable way. Uh, The last that I think we were hearing uh, just on our end was that, um, you know, this proposal, this idea could maybe get added onto a Senate bill, right? And in the Senate, you have somewhat of of the same process in the House, right? That, you know, a proposal isn't really going to get any sort of like serious uh, looking at or make serious movement unless it has blessings from the leaders in either of those two chambers. So um, that's kind of where things stand. But yeah, the the bottom line is that we haven't really seen uh, you know there's been a whole lot of talk about it, but not necessarily any sort of public momentum behind this idea yet.
1: Mitchell, how about weatherization, which obviously would not have solved this problem because it was 82 degrees outside or whatever the temperature was, but maybe a little bit hotter. Maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, but um... You know, weatherization is another issue here that has been pushed by the governor. Are we seeing any progress on that proposal?
3: Yeah, there's clearly a widespread appetite in the legislature for weatherization. It, the, the question is is how to pay for it, mm-hmm. and that we are unclear about. We, Aaron Douglas, our colleague, and I have been trying to um, kind of get to the bottom of that, but um, there are some proposals that have, have been put forward but not much movement in the legislature yet and and so we are yeah we are
1: following that very closely and of course as you and Aaron have reported it that's an expensive proposition it's it's it costs a lot of money to weatherize this infrastructure
3: right because it's experts say it's much it's much more efficient to build infrastructure with weatherization baked in rather than retrofitting infrastructure for weatherization
1: Cassie, it's April 14th, we're, you know, I I think we can safely call it mid-April. That's pretty late in the legislative session to not have a great sense of how all this is going to work. Are you sensing much of a sense of urgency around this issue?
4: Yeah, I would say
2: urgency, uh, but you know, the House's MO has been uh, really since the beginning or since we started talking about, uh, you know, the, the winter storm and whatnot, that they were going to take uh, you know, a more measured approach that they were going to try to fix things, um, not you know, not rush to do anything, um, you know, any sort of quick fix on the front end. That they were going to try to, uh, you know, work their way through all the different layers and, and and complications that kind of fed into what happened in February, and uh, try to pass some meaningful reforms. Um, you know, the Senate, on the other hand. Uh, at least for, for a brief period of time, push that repricing bill that I'm, I'm sure we talked about at some point um, <laughs> on one of these trip casts. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there was just, a, that was kind of seen or at least interpreted by folks in the house as, you know, this isn't really going to fix the actual uh, problem that we're trying to address here. So,
3: Matthew, even, even if uh, some, you know, the ledge moves more on weatherization, uh, some of the talk has been that they would, they would kind of direct the agencies like such as the railroad commission, which regulates the oil and gas industry to, to kind of oversee weatherization or potentially another regulatory agency. But, you know, there, there are questions there, right? The railroad commission and and really all of, all of the energy regulatory bodies in Texas are uh, pretty light handed, right? They, Mm -hmm. they are, they are not exactly the strongest enforcers and, uh, so it, questions definitely remain on if they are given the authority to require or enforce weatherization, how they would do that.
1: Right. And you and Aaron had a story not too long ago about kind of the Railroad Commission's reaction to the storm. And they spent a lot of time, even while the storm was happening and in the aftermath, kind of casting the blame on other industries, the renewable energy industry, and, and like really kind of looking out for the oil and gas industry to, to make sure that they didn't get hit too hard, you know, with the, at least in the, the blame game of all this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we will see how this develops over the next few weeks, uh, but let's take a break right now and listen to, and hear from our sponsors.
0: Sam Houston State University. At Sam Houston State University student doctors have started their journey to improve healthcare care access to rural and underserved Texas communities find out more at shsu.edu and Fairmont Austin experience downtown luxury at Fairmont Austin with executive rates and long-term stay offers for government employees for more information visit fairmontaustin.com
1: okay so even before the winter storm, we knew of another big hot button issue that would be before the legislature this session, and that was policing in, in Texas and police funding in Texas. Of course, this is the first legislative session after the death of George Floyd. Um, there, it is the first legislative session after the defund the police movement really gained steam and the kind of counter movement among Republican politicians to fight this idea. We have seen some movement in this realm uh, lately. Yesterday, the Senate passed Senate Bill 23, which would require cities or counties to hold an election before reducing police funding. Jolie, tell us a little bit about that vote and what what we might expect if that bill were to become law.
4: Yeah, um, so Senate Bill 23 is probably, I would say the most prominent uh, legislation right now in, in the Capitol to kind of this, defund the defunders movement um, that is coming out in on the Republican leadership so essentially Senate bill 23 would require cities or counties like you said to hold an election before they can cut police budgets um, share so essentially you know if there's a recession or something and uh, the entire city's budget goes down five percent you could cut the police budgets but you couldn't cut it 5% and a dollar. And you have to kind of keep it at that same share or, you know, you could increase it 10%. That's also fine. Um, But anything else would require an election and voters would have to say, yes, we agree with you. We want to cut this before you could do that. Um, You know, special election, potentially she did, uh, Joan Huffman, who's the author of this bill did add an amendment that you could, you know, most cities adopt their budgets in September, you could kind of adopt a budget um, saying, if this passes in the November election, we will do this um, to kind of, cause there was a lot of pushback on the cost of, you know, holding a special election for something like this as well as the turnout, right? Um, but it was interesting on the floor because a lot of Democrats really were pushing back on it, but then it passed on a 22 to 28 to two vote. Um, with only two Democrats voting against and one abstaining. Um, and Whit- John Whitmire, the senator, a Democrat from Houston, actually was saying uh, essentially that they kind of painted them into this, they, they backed them into this corner. They, they, he was saying, if you vote no on this, they're going to come after you as anti-police, um, even though he called the bill just like a political ploy and said it was, Essentially, just trying to micromanage uh, cities and local governments. Whereas, you know, if Washington D.C. did something like telling Texas how much money it could give to a certain uh, certain agency, there would be, you know, chaos in the in the capital. Um, but it still passed very broadly. Um, so it'll it'll be interesting. I was kind. I was expecting a little bit more of a partisan split um based on the issue of you know local control as well as uh police reforms versus police funding but um it'll so i so i'm not sure how it'll go in the house i know obviously it's more the house is more moderate um but still republican led i know there's still house bills that go about this in different ways i don't know if the house is going to try to take on the senate's bill as their main issue or if they're gonna try to push their big bill, which is House Bill 1900 instead.
1: Yeah, no question that the Republican leadership in Texas, the Lieutenant Governor, the Governor have been supportive of this idea. They see this as a political winner here. Cassie, have you heard, have we heard much from the speaker on this at all?
2: Um, Haven't heard anything too uh, new recently on it. Um, just to Jolie's point about 1900 or 1950, uh, particularly, I mean, you know, the, the, co, the, the, the members authoring that legislation, I think, are pretty universally considered to be, you know, part of House leadership, right? Um, And just to go back to, you know, an earlier comment I made when we were talking about the energy um, issue, you know, that to me signals that, um, you know, uh, if there is going to be any sort of opportunity for debate, uh, you know, on the House floor, like this is probably going to be the most likely vehicle um, if, if the House doesn't decide to take up the Senate bill like Julie was talking about.
1: There seems to be a trend going on in the legislature right now where a lot of these issues are coming out of the Senate first. I mean, Dan Patrick has always kind of liked to move quickly and then put the impetus on the other chamber to, you know, decide. And Maybe it's their fault if it doesn't get through or anything like that. I mean, that seems to be the trend this time as well. But I, it just feels like we don't have the same sense of of how the House will react to that, right? We just have never seen Dade Phelan as speaker yeah. in would, this situation.
2: I would say one exception to this, uh, which I agree with the, the trend is, uh, you know, the House is going to be debating a uh, constitutional carry or, or permitless carry mm. bill tomorrow, right? Which, um, you know, the, the Senate, there's a similar bill filed in the Senate, hasn't really moved throughout the process. and so. You know, if one were to assume that this bill passes on second reading tomorrow, and then maybe third reading the next day, you know, it would be in the in the Senate's court, right? And it would be Mm -hmm. interesting to see how the Senate Dan Patrick uh, react to you know obviously a proposal that's gotten a lot of attention over the years and hasn't really made its way through the legislative process until this point.
1: For sure, for sure. Okay, I want to go back.
4: Another another one though is like the bail bill. In speaking in the criminal justice world, um, bail has been labeled a priority issue as well, and that's one that's a little bit it almost feels like there's a little bit of a race there to get the House, House Bill 20, which is Abbott's, you know, the bill that has Abbott's blessing um, is waiting to go before the House floor at the same time that Senate Bill 21, which is Patrick's bail bill, which is also authored by Huffman to get across, it's, you know, might go up to the Senate as early as this week. So I, that one seems to be like, there might be a little bit of both are trying to, to get theirs across the finish line first.
1: Tell me a little bit about the the bill, the bail discussion, and and what are they trying to accomplish here? And is there much of a difference between those two bills?
4: Yeah, so that's that's the other thing. The bail bills are very different um, in the Senate and the House. Both are kind of reacting to. Well, so the House bill is reacting to. It's a longer. It's been in the works for a few years. Um, it's reacting to the death of a state trooper um, in. 2017, it was first, this similar legislation was pushed in last session in 2019 and didn't get across. Um, But it's essentially trying to keep, both are essentially trying to keep more dangerous people, quote, dangerous people in jail before they're convicted. um, Where, as you know, a lot of bail reform advocates, the, the main push for bail reform is to keep people to get people who can't afford to pay for their release. And that's the only reason they're being held in jail to be able to be released. Um, So both of these bills are coming at this as the let's keep more dangerous people in jail, but they're coming at it in very different ways. And the main reason for that is the Senate bill is largely reacting to Harris County um, and Harris County's misdemeanor bail reforms where they completely revamped their misdemeanor system because they were, you know, slammed in federal court for having an unconstitutional bail system um, that was discriminating against poor people. So they revamped their system. But then at the same time, you know, a whole slew of felony judges came in, a Democrat swept the bench in 2016, and they've started releasing a lot more people. And in some cases, you know, high profile cases where people who are released on somewhat low bonds, um, or even no cost bonds are then Accused of murder, so Harris, the Senate bill is really, really reacting heavily to specifically what's happening in Harris County, um, whereas the House bill is, you know, reacting to this, uh, originally to this murder of a of an officer, but looking more at risk risk assessments is the big thing that is in play there. Um, but both, you know, a lot of bill reform advocates don't like either of them, so that's another thing, but which one makes it across it will be it'll be interesting to see
1: yeah i think as we talk about all these different proposals from the house and the senate it's a it's a good thing to keep in mind that these are not necessarily going to be negotiated and figured out in a vacuum right the way that the legislature is set up where you you know a lot of the major bills you know they only meet for 6 months and a lot of the action a lot of the actual passage of bills happens at the the very tail end of that session you know, there's, there's negotiating, there's horse trading going on with a whole array of things. And, and, you know, those discussions between the leadership of the two chambers might touch on bail reform, you know, winter storm, policing, you know, all the different kinds of things that people are interested in. They, they, it's very hard to anticipate, especially from our vantage point, what will end up being a bargaining chip and what will not be. Julie, there's one other criminal justice thing I wanted to ask you about though, which is we mentioned again that this is the first legislative session after the death of George Floyd, that trial going on right now. We have a George Floyd act in the legislature. And we had Governor Abbott, who, you know, amid the protests of related to George Floyd's death, you know, said some there were some things that he wanted to address what's happening with with the proposals that are out there right now in terms of, you know, policing reform?
4: Yeah, so the George Floyd Act, the main one, which is House Bill 88, hasn't moved out of committee. Um, there was a, there's a lot, that one is kind of this omnibus, it has a bunch of provisions in it, um, you know, banning chokeholds, requiring officers to intervene if another, if their partner is, you know, using excessive force, there's, um limiting arrests for non-jailable offenses. There, there's a lot of things in there, but then they, uh, Mrs. Tom, uh, Ms. T, um, Representative Thompson, also kind of, they filed a lot of these as individual provisions as well. Like each each provision has its own bill number as well. So the act- the omnibus bill hasn't moved. There's been movement, and I, I think one of them is coming up, um, is in calendars, or um, which would be, to require any like any testimony from an officer has to be corroborated if there's you know by something else and this kind of comes in light of what's happened with the Houston um, in Houston with the raid into that home at the Harding Street raid is what it's called where they went into the home based off of this seemingly confidential informant tip which ended up not being real and it was just this one officer and it ended up with a no knock raid where uh, the people were killed Um, so that's reacting to that Um, I mean not exclusively but that's kind of what I think is pushing a lot of that is because we just have seen this Houston issue that is the main provision that I've seen getting the most movement though Um, the main bill is being seemingly held back based on qualified immunity Um, they're trying to get rid of in civil lawsuits where if someone's suing for the city or an officer for um, you know, harming or killing their family member, um, officers have this, like, this protection, this legal protection where, um, and it's, it's really hard to explain, but in, unless they have, if they can say that they've definitely violated the, the, their rights and they should, have, like, they should have known and that there's a court has already ruled that that specific case, like this specific instance was unconstitutional. Otherwise they're protected from legal, uh, a legal case. And that's not to say they can use this as a defense to say, oh, well, um, as the trial or as the case is moving forward, like this is why I reacted in this way. It means the case can't even begin. Um, so they're trying to get rid of that. And that has been a huge sticking point Um, So I think there's a lot of things in there that are probably behind the scenes trying to be negotiated. And I just, I don't know how well that's going.
1: All right, well, we will keep an eye on it. That about does it for us this week. Thank you to Jolie, Mitchell, and Cassie. Thank you to our producers, Todd and Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, the TAFEC, Sam Houston State University, and Fairmont Austin. We'll see you all next week. Do I have to talk to you?